0: All right, well, I, I see my pieces here, and I see the board, but where where can I place my worker? Where can I get the resources? I don't see any of them out here.
1: So there's there's no worker placement in this game. Uh, this, is, this is an Amerithrash game. Amerithrash? Oh. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Do you not know a board game term? Oh, <laughs> well, how the turntables... Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., joined today by Jacob. Hello. And today we are going to be continuing our conversations about what are our thoughts on specific terms and how games are described, this time talking about Amerithrash games. Mm -hmm. So we'll have uh, some thoughts on that later in the episode, but for now, let's talk about what we've been playing which is not Amerithrash games, we've been playing a Euro, Yep.
0: Teotihuacan. Yep, we brought it to the table, and this time we played it right.
1: I think, yeah, I'm trying to think back. I don't think we messed anything up. Mm-hmm. I think we did everything right. I mean, it felt about the same. Yeah. I mean, really, there were some things that were slightly less powerful now. Yeah. You know, technologies that only triggered once per turn instead of multiple times, mm-hmm. having to pay for the actions that we perform. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but other than that, I think everything felt about the same.
0: Felt about the same. I think also just the two player experience in this game is interesting. Um, Yeah. I think that that this game will play very differently with more than two players, just in terms of like what is useful and what isn't.
1: Yeah. I mean, because what you run into with this, this is now the third time that we've played with just the two of us. It's Mm -hmm. the third time you've won, it's the closest margin. So far, yeah, but it was still like 30 points.
0: Mm, I think it was, you had yeah, like
1: 157, I had 130. Yeah, and I think all three times you've played pretty hard into a pyramid focused strategy, yeah, and that's worked out pretty well for you. And I haven't really tried to contest you mm-hmm. on that, I've tried to go for other things. So this time, I tried to go for masks with sort of an emphasis on Avenue of the Dead as well. Previously, I had tried to focus on just leveling up the temples without building Mm -hmm. the pyramid. That didn't really work out. So I think, I mean, my conclusion from all of this was that the pyramid strategy is the best strategy or certainly the most forgiving.
0: I think it probably is the most forgiving. I think that the game itself, like if someone is allowed to just go out and just build everything and just like go through the pyramid, yeah, It's very, very powerful. I do think that if you have two people playing balanced strategies, where you know they block each other, they like you know build the pyramids, uh, they they prevent anyone from getting too much on the building track. That will change a decent amount. Sure. And I think that 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 would balance it out. I think because of just the way that we work, we don't really get in each other's ways very much.
1: Yeah, I mean, typically, if if one of us has identified that the other is going for a particular strategy, our solution is to pivot and focus on a different strategy rather than contest them for that strategy. And so maybe you're right. I mean, maybe if I had fought you a little bit harder for some of the pyramid tiles, Mm -hmm. it might have sort of undercut you a little bit rather than letting you run away with it. But I think one of the things about the game is that there is a certain amount of capacity building, engine building. You had acquired two technologies which synergized very well with A pyramid strategy, Mm -hmm. which meant I either would have had to pay you in points, essentially, to acquire those technologies and try to keep up with you or to try to pivot and focus on my own thing. So I don't know. It seems like the type of thing where the gameplay is encouraging you to specialize in a certain sort of thing. You know, you can still mm-hmm. advance on the temple tracks and even interact with the pyramid, like in the form of decorations yeah. without going construction heavy. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know, construction just seems so good.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of it was because like, you're right, I did spec into construction very much. I, I mean, I saw the, the two tiles that have been out for technology pretty much every game that we've played, which yeah. are the gain an extra resource when you land on one of the resource tiles. And get that extra worker for free and a discount of one on one of your building tiles when you build. Right. Which is
1: remarkable in terms of efficiency.
0: Yeah, exactly. It was the kind of thing where it's like, I literally just created an engine. I was like, the way that the tiles were all set up, it was just like, all right, well, I have two of my guys sitting on one side of the board while the other two are gathering resources. And then they get to like the stone part where they like sit. And then my other two, I start walking through mm-hmm. and like building and like you know I might you know use one of them to get cocoa in between or something like along those lines. But that's literally all I did. I don't think I used almost any other action other than I bought a few technologies and I pretty much I, I bought a few technologies and that's yeah, I, think I think the only other thing it. that I used. Though I will say that the thing that gave gave me the game, I mean, it would have been a lot closer. You still technically would have won. But the fact that I got up on the temple track, on the the green
1: right. Right, yeah. You were able to get one of the the temple bonus tiles, Mm -hmm. whereas I wasn't. And if I had, then it would have gone from being a 27-point differential to a 2-point differential. Which is, I mean, obviously a huge gap. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's easy to say, if I had done this one thing... Yeah. But the number of steps and the number of turns that would have been required to get those extra levels on the blue pyramid, mm-hmm. there was just no combination of actions I could have taken that would have gotten me that.
0: I'm, I'm thinking on almost my end where like it had it been like a few more blues and reds that came out instead of the two greens that I got very close to the end mm-hmm. on the building track. I wouldn't have gotten that 20 points at the very end. Sure. And like, you know, it's that kind of thing where, or if like, you know, you had taken maybe one or two of the blues. Mm -hmm. That came out. Yeah.
1: I mean, but again, you know, my contention there was that getting any of those blues at all would have required me to invest in stone, which would have diverted me from the other things that I had been doing that were also scoring me points. So it's it's very much just like a, it sounds like it would be easy to contest you, but that's sort of discounting the opportunity cost of what I would have had to give up in order to do that.
0: No, that's fair. I, I just think that it was also just the fact that I wasn't contested on any of the building tiles. Meant that I could take my time and and like save up to have enough to do whichever ones of those I wanted in order right. to, to like you know go up on the temple track on whenever there was one out. Right. Like, you never sniped one of those from me. You never, did like, blocked me on any of that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, Which, I mean, like, it is a different thing, but I'm thinking less of, like, the two-player game, and I'm thinking more of the more-player game. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, when you have, like, three or four players, you've got more competition in there, and you can't just, like, you know, choose two almost completely different strategies. You've got a lot more, like, you know, you, you have to work together. You have to, like, do this other kind of stuff, so...
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm interested to see what it plays like with 3 or I would like to see a 4 player game. Yeah. In particular. I think mm-hmm. a 2 player I'm just not my enthusiasm has waned for it.
0: Like fair enough.
1: I'm over 3. I'm done.
0: <laughs> I think this game also just really clicks with me.
1: Yeah. No, you definitely you're good at it. Like you, I mean your first two games, yeah, we were playing them wrong, but they were both over 200 points. Yeah. Like something about this just like
0: clicks yeah. for you. So,
1: you know, but we'll see. We'll mm-hmm. see maybe we'll we'll get it to table maybe for stream or something. Yeah, I have a variety yeah, stream with like four people. Four suddenly. players. So. Yeah.
0: Other than that, I actually got to play a game at AwesomeCon this weekend. I went there, and for the most part, I was on the floor, but I did take a moment to like you know go into the board game room, take a look around, and like when I looked at the library, well, most of the library was Catan.
1: Right. Yeah. You've been spoiled by the Washington library.
0: Exactly. Shameless plug. Check out Washington. We've got a promo code dragon. If you use that, you will get an extra 10% off. Do it. Yeah. But one of the games that actually a coworker of mine picked up to just play was Wasabi by Z-Man Games.
1: Okay. I've never heard of it.
0: I hadn't heard of it at all before this either. And, you know, I came by and uh, they dealt me in pretty much. And it's a really interesting game because it's got a board where you're just, you're putting out all the different ingredients. And what it is, is almost like a mix of like tic-tac-toe slash connect four. But like you, it's like a spatial kind of thing where you have different recipes that you have to have touching each other. Like, you know, the, in a straight line, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could have like egg, maki, and green onion or something like that. That would make a certain roll, right? Okay. And they would have to be in a line. The order doesn't matter for you to be able to do the recipe, but if you get them in the right order, you then also get an additional point, pretty much. Or a certain number of additional points, depending on whether the recipe is two, three, four, or five ingredients long. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the other thing is you can't just like blitz only two ingredient things for the entire game. Okay. You only have a certain number of each token. I think it's like uh five two recipe tokens four three recipe tokens three four recipe tokens or something along those lines it could sure. actually be like uh one last, like four three two one okay and once you're out of those tokens for that recipe count you can't make any more of those Interesting. or you can't score any more of those pretty much
1: and is this a timed situation or like- no what
0: happens is e- each turn you have 3 ingredients that the start of it is actually pretty interesting because someone else is going to give you three ingredients. Hmm. Like so it's just like the person to your right gives you the ingredients that you're going to start with and you give the person to to your left and and so on and so And forth.
1: do you know what it is that they want to? No. Nope. Okay, so it's, it's totally it,
0: it's completely random, but it's just a fun like little interaction thing where it's like I'm going to give you like three of these things or whatever or like right. you know one of these one of these and one of these. And so on your turn, you pretty much you get to place one tile from behind your menu pretty much. Okay. On this board, and the board depending on how many players you have is a different size. And that's about it. That's your turn. You place okay. one and then you take one okay. from, from the supply. And there's limited ingredients. There's only I think 3 of each ingredient. Oh wow. So like, you know, if if they're already on the board, you got to figure something else out. But one of the other cool things is whenever you finish a recipe, you get an action card. And those action cards allow you to do things like remove an ingredient or stack something on top of another ingredient, or mm. switch two ingredients. Okay.
1: So they give you some flexibility that you wouldn't yeah. normally have.
0: Exactly. Or like wasabi, which is just like, you know, you place it down over four tiles and those four tiles are now unusable until someone picks up that wasabi. Huh. And And taking the wasabi into your hand, you can only have like two of these action cards at a time. Right. If you take the wasabi, you get an additional victory point. Ah. And you're not allowed to have like more than one of each type in your hand. And you can't take the one that you played this turn or anything like that yeah, unless sure. it's the only one that's left, that kind of stuff. So all in all, I th- I really liked it. I thought it was a very fun like mix of just like, you know, the spatial reasoning where it's like, you know, where am I going to put this? How am I going to do this so that it's not to get blocked and that kind of stuff? And then like strategy where like I started off the bat, like I'm like, I am going to go for my five right now mm-hmm. because right now is the most open and they almost blocked me, but then I got one of those switcheroo things. Sure. So I was able to, like, put it in and switch it up. But it just, like, it, it makes it really interesting to see how all that works together.
1: Yeah. Sounds like, uh, you know, fun, quick game.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it was it was quite enjoyable. Uh, it's unfortunately out of print right now, so... My friend actually looked it up and she was just like, yeah, I uh, looked it up online uh, after we played it and it's like going for like $200 right now. Cool. It's like, okay. Yeah. yeah it's cool, not cool. worth that much. Grail game, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much.
1: There you go. That's uh, what we've been playing lately.
0: All righty. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, marathrash games. So... Thrash is an interesting term and it originated with pretty much the division between what Euro games are and what games were were actually coming out in the US at the time. At that time pretty much in Europe you had the Catans, the uh, these types of games that you had a lot more victory points a lot less of the player interaction like we saw on the last episode of this game glossary kind of series that we talked about in the U S. However, you had more games like the Eagle Griffin games uh, risk and other things like that, that are all these like really heady type war games where everything is all about battle and like that kind of stuff. And, and that's where I think the division really started. And nowadays the distinction is a lot less clear Mm -hmm. because both sides have almost taken like the better parts of the other and almost integrated them into the gameplay. So even though there is definitely a different feel and a different almost look to games that are now considered Amerithrash, it's really blurring the lines.
1: Yeah, definitely. But in order to blur lines, you kind of have to have them first. So yeah. what we're going to look to do today is sort of stake out what do we think represents sort of an Amerithrash game in its purest form? What are the absolutely essential mechanics, concepts, components, mm-hmm. and then go from there. First among them is uncertain outcomes of the actions that you're performing. Yeah. So we talked through it. We thought about, okay, what are some iconic Amerithrash games? What are the key things? Mm-hmm. Uncertain outcomes. Risk. Was the quintessential Amerithrash game? You're rolling dice. Yep. You've got no mitigation. Nope. And Amerithrash games as a whole... Mm -hmm. have kept that model some of them have mitigation you know you can research technologies or improvements or whatever that will give you like oh all of your ones are treated as twos or something like that but at the end of the day the gameplay centers around you making a decision about what you want to do Mm -hmm. and then determining the outcome of that decision via some other mechanism that you don't have full control over so in risk or in a game like a distant plane Mm -hmm. that might take the form of rolling dice In a game like Inish, that's going to take the form of playing cards against your opponent. Yeah. You have full control over what you're playing, but you don't have full control over the outcome of your action because you don't know what they're going to play against you.
0: Exactly. This is opposed to what a lot of Euro games are. The outcomes of any action in most Euro games is certain. Like, you're going to take that action, you're going to get that benefit. Right. It's just whether or not you're going to be able to take that action, that is uncertain. Right. So I think that that is definitely like the core of how a lot of these games are played. Additionally, these games often have a lot of player interaction. So it can be different types of player interaction, but there's people that are like around the table, and you're you're getting in each other's way, or you're helping each other in some way. There, there's always someone doing something that is going to affect multiple other people or whoever else is playing the game at that time. And a lot of them are not like just side effects. It is like direct effects. And its most well-known form is, well, battling. Right. So, you know, again, risk. You're going, you're attacking Australia or you're attacking Ertuks or whatever, which one you want. You're, you're doing that. You're defeating whoever is in there in order to be able to take over that area. In games like Inish, you're still like, you're trying to get the territory controlled by like moving your people around or trying to convert other people, building citadels, doing other things like that. These are all directly interacting with the other players.
1: Right. It doesn't necessarily have to be hostile interaction. Mm -hmm. Player conflict, you know, is a very common form of player interaction, but it doesn't have to be the only type. Something like a dungeon crawler, so massive darkness, where again, you're rolling dice to determine the outcome of a thing. High degree of player interaction, but it's cooperative. You are mm-hmm. covering for each other. You're trading items back and forth for each other. You're supplementing each other's attacks. Mm-hmm. So high degree of player interaction, not necessarily looking to attack or eliminate other players.
0: Exactly. And along with that, I think comes the last thing that we think is really important, which is pretty much that there you have people on a map and you have to move them tactically around the map. Right. So a lot of Amerithrash games have miniatures of some sort. They're not completely necessary, but they're just what it has evolved to because it's a cool representation of something on a map. Right. And you are moving these around the battlefield based on what other people have done and trying to get yourself in the most advantageous position for yourself. Right. So... It's got a lot of that kind of movement. It's a lot of like, you know, just trying to figure out like whether or not someone else is going to do something like, you know, where's the safe part for me? Where's the dangerous part, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And you
1: might have, you probably do and probably should have sort of a larger strategy in mind. Mm -hmm. But on a turn by turn basis, a lot of the gameplay that you're engaging in, a lot of the moves that you're making are tactical. They're responsive. They're looking at the immediate situation, thinking about a coin game. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Again, to use a distant plane, the one that I'm most familiar with, the US wants to surge in, make everybody happy, and then leave. That's the strategy. But tactically, that's where you're going to live. Where do you need to put troops? Where can you apply support? Things like that. Those sorts of decisions, that is what really gets at the core of an Amerithrash game. And, you know, we mentioned tactical movement mm-hmm. is sort of how we've been referring to this as opposed to tactical gameplay. And that's because predominantly you do find that these are dudes on a map style games. Sometimes it's miniatures, sometimes it's standees, and this in the case of a game like Dead of Winter. Yep. But pretty consistently you've got actual graphical representation of where your units are mm-hmm. and how you're moving them.
0: Yep, and the different locations that they're moved to and the distances between those locations do have specific effects on like how other people play their turns. And that's pretty much what we think are like the main parts of an Amerithrash game that like no Amerithrash game can be without. Right.
1: You've got the uncertain outcomes of your actions, you've got a high degree of player interaction, and you've got an emphasis on tactical movement.
0: Exactly. There are, however, some things that we think are very common, but not necessary for these kinds of games. And one of the the ones that we first thought that was like, you know, necessary for the game, but then upon like actually starting to think about it, uh, we stepped back from was territory control. Yeah. So a lot of games do have this. You're trying to control the different territories. And uh, a lot of times either victory conditions are based on that, or you will get a large amount of benefit because of that. But it is just very, very common for Amerithrash games to have a large element of territory control
1: right and i think one of the things about territory control is that if you look at the genre historically mm-hmm. that's the point that you're coming out from again risk access and allies yep. very territory control centric games that is the entirety of the goal is to control all the territory and to eliminate your opponent and as the board game scene gets much more integrated you're adopting concepts from euro games from other types of games You're moving sort of away from that, but it is still common. Yeah. Player elimination, one that I just mentioned there, same type of thing. Player elimination used to be a mainstay. Mm -hmm. Now I think game designers are generally realizing, hey, it sucks to be eliminated. Yeah, People don't like playing our games for that reason. Or, I mean, some people do like playing their games for that reason. Mm -hmm. But by and large, you've seen sort of a movement away from player elimination as an essential component yeah. of an Amerithrash game, but it is still fairly common.
0: Yeah, it still definitely happens. I think it, it becomes a lot harder to eliminate players, but you can still get eliminated from many of the Amerithrash-type games. Right.
1: I mean, Twilight Imperium 3, mm-hmm. it's really, really hard to actually fully take somebody off the map, but you can do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and otherwise, you know, someone can just be stuck in a corner without any units and just playing there because they have to. Yeah. Speaking of TI3... Another thing that is quite commonly associated with Amerithrash games is their length. Yeah. Long. Yeah. (laughs) You can just say long. Long. I mean, you've got TI3, which is like an 8 to 10 hour game. You've got coin series games, which are similar, probably 5 to 6 hours. Right.
1: Axis and Allies, or even a step above that, like Asia Engulfed, Europe Engulfed.
0: Yeah. Even some of the more recent ones, like Star Wars Rebellion, like, these can be really, really long games. And I think that that's pretty common, but there have been coming out, I think, a decent number of games that fit in that mid-range in terms of length that I would still definitely consider a marathon. thrash. So things like Inish. Mm-hmm. That takes only about, like, you know, an hour and a half maybe yeah. to finish. Uh, I also have at least one game called Pones, which is a very short Marathrash style game where it's like just little tactical movement that takes up only up to like 30-35 minutes.
1: Right. Anytime you've got any sort of like arena style mm-hmm. combat game, so again yep. like like yeah, definitely a Marathrash. Also definitely on the shorter side. You can get through a game in like half an hour 45 minutes.
0: Exactly. Another thing that I think some people might have already noticed and might be yelling at their uh, whatever they're listening to the podcast on. Headphones?
1: Please don't yell at your headphones in public.
0: Yeah, it, it makes... People wonder. Um, (laughs) And what they would be yelling about is like, why are we considering something like massive darkness in a Marathrash game?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a perfectly valid question. And again, I think we've alluded to a lot of that with the historic Mm -hmm. elements of the term versus bringing it into sort of a contemporary usage and some of the difficulties in laying out. Okay. Well, if you stake out a position about this is what constitutes that. Somebody will counter, well, what about this? You just say, yeah. Mm-hmm. So taking a look at the core elements that we've identified, we can see that it is broader than just sort of the traditional territory control war game-esque style board games. Yeah. And you can open it up into this world where maybe it's less common, but still useful to think about them in terms of marathrash games because of what that conveys.
0: Yeah, I think that the the major thing with games like Zombicide, Massive Darkness, and these other cooperative games in this genre is that you're working together, but you're you're not sure even if you're in the best position ever, you, you can still lose and you can right. still like, you know, you have that uncertain outcome. You're still rolling those dice, seeing what happens. You have mitigation, but the outcome is definitely uncertain mm-hmm. and you're still moving around on the map and you do have a lot of that player interaction. It's positive player interaction for the most part, but it's still player interaction. Also, I think one of the key things here is to look at the lineage of these kinds of games. They came from the dungeon crawlers like Descent, which have dungeon masters they have like game masters who are playing the opposing team and so you still have a lot of that where it's like it's team versus other person so many versus one so more Mm -hmm. of a semi-co-op than it is a full co-op and these are just almost an extension from that that keep a lot of those uh, same mechanics but just pretty much create an analog algorithm for how the enemies work right So
1: after taking stock of, you know, some of these things, these, again, essential elements that we've identified, we're left with the question of, is the term Amerithrash useful? Is it going to convey exactly the same types of things to exactly different people? Yeah. And I think the answer is no, Mm -hmm. but I think a good place to start is by talking about it like this and delineating. These are the things that we think, and these are the ways that we're going to commit to using it, which Mm -hmm. are high player interaction, uncertain outcomes, and
0: tactical movement emphasis yeah exactly and I think that these are definitely good concepts and I think that having a way to define the genre will help definitely new people coming in uh, and just other people who don't really know too much about gaming know what they're getting into almost so it's just like using the mechanics rather than the um, the overall term is also like I think preferable for the most part
1: yeah I mean I'm definitely going to default to
0: that Yeah, like where it's just like describing something as more of a territory control game, which I think with Amerithrash is a lot easier because Amerithrash isn't as widespread as Eurogame in terms of terminology. And a lot of people do call things like territory control dungeon crawler and all these kinds of things that are a lot more descriptive and a lot more mechanical almost. And we just wanted to have something like, you know, where it's like it is still a term in the industry that just for the historical aspect of it is really interesting to think about
1: yeah and so there is the latest in our series we've got two more of these coming down the pike mm-hmm. uh we're gonna have one related to party games sort of large group social style games yep. and then one related to uh, shrug other games games that don't necessarily fit into any of those uh the three categories that we'll have talked about already
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope that you enjoyed it. As always, this episode is brought to you by our patrons and our Twitch subscribers. So thank you very much for your support. We really couldn't do this without you. So for our Greater Worm patrons, thank you to Meg, Carissa, Sam, Hunter, and Casey as well as our third-tier Twitch patron, Adam Krasberg. Thank you all so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. Also, if you are interested in board game conventions in D.C., well, there's one that you should know about, Washington. We mentioned it earlier, and it's going to be a lot of fun September 7th and 8th this year. Lots of board games. We have usually around 1,000, 1,200 people, and even more board games than that. <laughs> so there's... A ton of fun to be had. There's uh, playtesting of board games. They actually playtested Wingspan at Washington last year before it actually came out. So, you know, who knows? You might be playtesting one of the big games next year. So quite a story to tell. Yeah, exactly. Come on down. Plus, since you're a listener here, you get a chance to have an additional 10% off. So if you use the promo code DRAGON when you're checking out, you will get 10% off of your ticket for Washington which is currently going at $50 for the entire weekend for an adult and $20 for the entire weekend for a child. So, you know, check that out when you get the chance. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Dragon's Demise.